0: Australia is squandering the potential benefits of temporary skilled migration. Politically unpopular, politicians often restrict visa sponsorship to fewer, lower-skill, low-wage jobs. Instead, government should be evaluating how best to improve the system to attract global talent, boost the budget, and reduce exploitation. I'm Kat Clay, and with me today are Henry Sherrill, Deputy Director of Migration, and Will Mackey, senior associate, to discuss their new report on how to fix temporary skilled migration. Welcome, Henry and Will. Okay. So, Henry, this might seem like quite a niche topic, but migration has a huge impact on the Australian economy. Why does Australia have a temporary skilled visa? How does it work?
1: John Howard introduced the first major temporary skilled work visa, which was called the 457 visa in 1996. And this followed an influential review of migration, which found at the time Australian employers needed a more straightforward way to hire skilled migrants, particularly as the economy transitioned towards more service jobs. Today, however, the visa is designed primarily to fill skill shortages. Uh, It's in the name of the visa, it's called the Temporary Skill Shortage Visa. And the idea is that the government selects what occupations are in shortage in the economy and employers can hire people in those occupations. So the visa works, it's a three-step process for these employers. Employers have to sign up and they need to be approved before they can sponsor workers. They have to have paid their taxes and that sort of thing. Then they have to nominate a job in their business and this job must be an occupation, which has been classified as in shortage by the government. There are some other rules as well. The salary has to be the same as what Australians Would be paid for doing similar work, and it must be at least fifty three thousand nine hundred dollars. Employers must advertise the jobs, and they've also got to pay an upfront fee, which is worth between four and seven thousand dollars for a four year visa. So after this has happened, uh, that's when the migrant actually applies for a visa, which is linked directly to the job, which has been approved by the government. And migrants have to show that they can do the job and that they can speak English uh, and a few other things. Uh, so that's the way that this visa works uh, at the moment.
0: So, Henry, why is this so politically unpopular?
1: Well, yeah, I think it's a really good question, Kat. Um, traditionally, you know, Australians are pretty open to migration compared to the attitudes uh, in many other countries. I think in the wake of the pandemic, those attitudes have probably softened a bit. Maybe people are a little bit more sceptical uh, than they once were because of the uncertainty which is going on. But really, as soon as you mention the word temporary or short term, migration pe- people react really strongly Australians don't like temporary migration you know unlike you know say the European guest worker visas in the 1950s and 60s Australia had a post-world War two experience of permanent migration uh, where people would come and they would settle and they would live here you know some people did go home um, but but many stayed I think temporary migration in Australia tends to be associated with cheap labour. So we also know that migrants who are sponsored by their employer, they have to stick with them or they risk being sort of forced to leave the country. And this really limits their bargaining power and it can result in exploitation. You know, we read about these stories in the media and I think that feeds the, you know, the unpopularity of this idea.
0: Well, turning to you, I mean, every day I hear something about skill shortages in the media. Is this the visa to solve this particular problem?
2: Well, you're absolutely right, Kat. You can't go, (laughs) I I, I can't walk down the street without seeing a kind of help wanted sign. I think, you know, to solve this uh, acute current labor market problem, we've first got to identify its cause. Um, You know, there there are certainly businesses in some industries that are struggling to find workers at the moment. Before Australia closed its borders, there are about 2 million temporary residents in Australia. Now, 140,000 of those. We're on the TSS, the Temporary Skill Shortage Visa. That's the visa that's the focus of our report. That's Australia's Temporary Skill Visa. But the majority aren't on those visas, aren't on a skilled visa. Uh, For example, we have 700,000 New Zealanders who are in the country at the end of 2019, about 630,000 students and 130,000 working holidaymakers. So these are the people that make up a very large share of the temporary workers um, in Australia. Temporary migrants themselves make up a pretty small share of Australia's labour force, Um, but there are industries that use temporary migrants more than others. Um, Hospitality is is a key one here with almost 20% of the hospitality workforce um, on some form of temporary visa. These are mostly students, New Zealanders and working holidaymakers. The three Uh, unskilled or or three temporary migrants, uh, three groups of temporary migrants who do not need a specific skill to come into the country. Only about 2% of the hospitality industry are temporary skilled visa holders. So what's happened since Australia closed its border, we kind of slammed our border shut in, in around March 2020. A lot of people think that means that, you know, migrants, especially temporary migrants, just disappeared. And that's not True. New Zealanders, for example, this, you know, of the 700,000, most are still here. We only lost about 4% of them between 2019 and today. Temporary skilled workers, uh, mostly here as well, only down about 20%. So we still have, you know, 80% of that, that 2019 number. But really what we've lost are students and working holidaymakers. There are only about half as many international students in Australia as there were before the pandemic. And 90% fewer working holidaymakers, and so this loss of students and working holidaymakers has been the main driver of labour shortages. Uh, labour shortages in industries that tended to employ them before the pandemic, like the hospitality industry, and because these are largely low-skilled, low-wage jobs that were held by students and backpackers, the temporary skilled visa kind of it wasn't. It's not the cause of this labour shortage. It's not the, the root cause of the problem. And we certainly should not now start to use our skilled visa to fill these, these low-wage jobs.
0: So, Will, what's the matter with the current visa set up?
2: Well, the current temporary skilled shortage visa, uh, Australia's temporary skilled visa, doesn't serve Australia as well as it could. For expanding, growing businesses who want to bring in high-wage, high-skilled workers um, from, from around the world, it's it's unreliable, it's confusing it's difficult to use. Part of the reason why this visa was introduced by the Howard government in the 90s was as a more straightforward way for businesses to tap into global talent. Um, And it's just no longer the case. For many of the low-wage migrants who who come into Australia on this visa, so these are especially cooks and chefs, exploitation is rife, and labour market protections for them are, are lacking. Now, much of these issues come from occupation lists. So these are occupation lists that define what what kind of occupation is allowed uh, to be used for temporary skilled migration and what is not. This is decided by a combination of the National Skills Commission and the Department of Home Affairs, and they're looking to identify which occupations are in, quote, shortage. Um, This shortage is really difficult to define. Uh, we, we, We don't actually have a good definition. Of a shortage, the National Skills Commission um, uses a definition of kind of firms not being able to find workers at current levels of remuneration. But this definition, you know, quite literally does not allow for wage adjustments in the market. If an employer wants to find, you know, is only is only offering fifty thousand dollars or sixty thousand dollars a year for a job, and they can't find a worker. Usually, they would have to raise raise the the price or raise the wage for that job to attract workers. Um, If if they are by this definition allowed to tap into a global labour market just because they are unwilling to raise wages, um, that's that's a real problem. It's not kind of the definition that's going to serve Australian workers the best. Even if we had a good definition of a of a labour of of a skill shortage, there are more than one thousand occupations on these lists that classify each of the 13 million jobs in Australia. But not all jobs within an occupation are the same. You can think of a senior accountant at a global firm based in in Adelaide or Melbourne, compare that that to graduate accountant who's working for a, a, a mechanic in Mildura. Now, these two people would likely say that their occupation is accountant, but their tasks and responsibilities and remuneration, you know, how much they, they, they get paid, is going to differ substantially. By looking at occupations, you can't distinguish between these very two, two very different kinds of, kinds of jobs. And finally, the occupation lists are not made for this purpose. They're made by the ABS for multiple objectives. They're made by the ABS and used by the National Skills Commission, used by the Department of Home Affairs. Uh, and they're rarely updated. The last substantial update was in kind of two two thousand and thirteen, and before that two thousand and six, and this means you know cutting edge firms, firms who want to tap into uh, new occupations in the in the global labour market, they simply can't use this visa because uh, the, those occupations
1: don't exist on on our occupation list. And I was going to say the same thing. Well, yeah, data scientist, I think is the best example here, Kat, and it's you know this is a new job in the labour market. It hasn't been around a long time Um, and it was only able to be sponsored under this visa in 2019 when the ABS were able to tell Home Affairs where they had classified data scientists. And if you think of, you know, hundreds of, if not thousands of companies in Australia who needed data scientists and they're paying them big dollars to come and do this work, if we can't you know, harness this and use it in a, a streamlined visa program. That's a really big problem. Absolutely, and it's for you know this is the, our
2: temporary skilled visa. Um, if it can't respond quickly to to the skill demands of um, of businesses in Australia, especially for high wage jobs, then it's simply not doing its job.
0: That's a great example, Will, of the accountant in Mildura versus the accountant for a global firm. Uh, It was really interesting seeing you guys doing research for this and looking at the list of skilled jobs and um, things like penetration tester, which I had to clarify to you that is actually a legitimate cybersecurity job about infiltrating uh, physical buildings and testing systems by hacking them but were there any other interesting yeah. skills well to... ab-
2: absolutely kat and that, i mean that comes from the 2021 update uh, from the abs to the australian and new zealand standard classification of occupations there are yeah as i said now uh, more than a thousand detailed occupations uh and look determining which of those in which area of the country is in shortage one year after the other like we simply you know we do not have the the data that's Um, data to support those decisions, we don't have, um, and even if we did, we don't really have a working definition of what a a kind of a shortage actually is.
0: Well, we clearly need to get more data scientists into the country to figure out the data, right? Exactly. (laughs) Okay, Will, so the big question is what should we do about it? If we shouldn't be focusing on these skill shortages, what should we focus on instead?
2: There's a number of things in our report that we recommend. Two of the biggest ones um, are around occupation lists and around visa portability. So first we need to stop using occupation lists that require these enormous large um, bureaucratic processes in an attempt to pinpoint all skill shortages in the Australian labor market in all areas at all points of time. Uh, We don't have a definition for this. We don't have timely data. And so what happens instead, We get occupation lists that are largely influenced by industry lobby groups. Instead, you should abandon the occupation lists and set a higher wage floor, $70,000, which is about the median income of mid-career workers in Australia. And then let businesses identify when to use temporary skilled migration to benefit, to benefit their business. This threshold means that some industries, of course, will lose a small share of their current labour force. The hospitality industry will will no longer be able to bring in cooks and chefs that earn, say, $50,000 on a skilled visa, Um, and this will knock out for the hospitality industry about 1.5% of its current labour force. Um, But that's a real outlier. For all other industries, the the share of people not being allowed in um, uh, 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 is is less than a percent. Now these workers, the workers who we've we've studied, um, the people who earn less, coming into Australia, who earn less than $70,000, while they're here, they see very little wage growth. Um, temporary migrants brought in for jobs that pay less than 70,000 see about 2%, or sorry, less than 2% annual wage growth compared to about 5% annual wage growth for people uh, for temporary migrants who come in on for, for jobs that earn more than $70,000. dollars we, we were kind of knocking out that group, um, but the temporary skilled migration program is going to be much easier for businesses to use when they're employing a high wage worker, so somebody over $70,000. And this works out on balance to kind of increase the number of jobs that will be available for temporary skilled migration in Australia. Currently, the temporary skilled migration program is open to about 44% of full-time jobs in Australia, and many of them, as we've shown, are low-wage jobs like cooks and chefs. And it does, you know, the occupation lifts does um, result into some questionable, um, some questionable answers for our skilled migration program. So you can, at the moment, in, uh, you can employ a migrant worker a skilled migrant worker in a pub kitchen in Melbourne, but you can't use that same visa to hire an anaesthetist at a Melbourne hospital. Um, and we don't necessarily think that's where we're getting the best out of that system. Uh, and by removing occupation lists um, and adding this $70,000 wage floor, uh, we're going to open up skilled migration to 66% of jobs uh, or full-time sh- uh, jobs in Australia. And finally, the second major reform from our report argues to allow portability of visas so that migrants are allowed to switch employers freely. And this will do two things. First, it will reduce exploitation of the worker. One substantial problem that migrant workers face, um, migrant workers on this visa face at the moment, that because they can't switch employers, if they are mistreated, unpaid, um, you know, working hours they're not meant to be working. Their only option really is to report the employer, uh, and that means they will pay the ultimate price of needing needing to go home. Allowing them to switch employers freely will will kind of mean that they can can leave an abusive or exploitative uh, uh, employer and move somewhere else. And this improves the bargaining power of temporary migrants, which is particularly important because it improves the bargaining power of Australian workers as well. You're working, if, if your employer have, has access to a temporary migrant with no bargaining power, it means you as an, as an Australian worker will have little bargaining power, power as well.
1: I've been working sort of in and around this visa for about 10 years. and I haven't really seen some of the empirical evidence uh, presented in this way before. And it shows really clearly that lower wage workers who are bound to their firm really struggle in the labour market. And I think that's a really important sort of policy point of view for Australian migration in general. As we come out of the pandemic, as we get back to normal, you know, if you're an employer and you don't have to give people wage rises because of visa policy, that hurts, you know, the migrant that it hurts maybe the australian workers in that firm but you know perhaps maybe most importantly uh or, or not most importantly but very importantly as well it, it hurts all the other businesses trying to do the right thing and it becomes this race to the bottom and we don't want a race to the bottom on wages and conditions in this country uh, and we can already see how that plays out in certain sectors yeah you, know, you can think about horticulture I think we're starting to see it in hospitality um, and we don't want to be adding to this. We want to be moving in a different direction.
0: Yeah, that's a great point, Henry, that we don't want to race to the bottom and especially to improve the conditions for all workers and especially to prevent exploitation. I think that's a really important one, um, especially around moving employers Uh, because I can imagine that some employees feel like they're trapped when they come here on the visa.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, that's, that's exactly right. And one of the things we recommend, which is a, a pretty small change, but something we see as very low-hanging fruit, is if you're a nurse uh, and you get a promotion, so you become a team leader in, in in your hospital, at the moment, under the rules of the visa, you need to get a new visa. You can't just keep your visa and sort of your employer can you know, keep, keep hiring you. So you need to pay $2,600. You need to fill out all the paperwork again. You need to do all of this stuff, which sort of is, it's a barrier in terms of effectively getting a pay rise uh, and and seeing more money and seeing more skills and seeing more responsibility. And those types of barriers that are sort of imposed just for the sake of visa policy, you know, this is not the right thing to be doing. uh, And we really need to try and address uh, these types of uh, policy decisions because they're taking us in the wrong direction. Absolutely. And it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't make
2: sense really to financially punish people who are successful migrants in, in Australia who, who get promoted. Um, that's maybe not the best way to, to design a skilled migration program.
0: And it leads quite nicely into my next question for you, Henry, which is around that $70,000 threshold. And particularly in caring industries, uh, we've done research into aged care and how we need to improve um uh, the skilled workforce there. Also um, looking at pay rises in that industry. People are critically underpaid. Won't a seventy thousand dollars threshold knock out heaps of jobs? And and how will it affect areas where they do need skilled workers, but you're unlikely to find an aged care worker that meets that threshold at the moment.
1: One of the big things which we got writing this report, and when we were going out and talking to people about our ideas, and 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 sort of how we were pulling this all together was you know what would this do to this sector of the economy what would this do to this sector of the economy and aged care seems to be on everyone's mind at the moment it's a you know it's a really big topic Uh, we've had the royal commission uh, we've had the you know pandemic in aged care facilities across this country Um, and so what we did is went and looked at at the what is the workforce in these different industries we're very um aware that if you sort of create a really big change and you sort of have a really big effect, uh, you know, that might not be the best way to do policy change, in a in a quick way. And so, but, you know, when we look at the people who are on this visa now uh, they don't tend to work in aged care. Uh, It's about four to 5% of nurses in aged care. Um, But if you're a care worker or if you're a cleaner in an aged care facility, those occupations are not eligible. They're not deemed to be in shortage by the government. Uh, And also their pay rates uh, tend to be below the salary threshold as it is at the moment, which is $53,900. So uh, entry-level care work under the award for aged care is about $43,000 without penalties. Um, So that's the reason we don't see lots of care workers on this visa at the moment. But, you know, lots of migrants do work in the care sector. Um, They're just different types of migrants. Uh, You know, we don't have sort of one type of migrant in Australia. We have lots of different types. And the people that we see there are sort of all sorts of different people. Uh, We have sort of people on permanent visas, and they might be former skilled permanent visas. They might be the partners of those skilled permanent visas. Uh, They might be family permanent visas, the spouses and kids of of different people, different Australian citizens. They might be refugees uh, who came here under the humanitarian program. Uh, And then they might be uh, people who hold a temporary visa. You know, we have a lot of Kiwis in this country, as Will said, about 700,000. We have a lot of international students in this country who work while they're studying. uh, And and those people, you know, they work in aged care as well. So they work across the labor market. But these groups are all much bigger shares of the care workforce and the cleaning workforce um, because they tend to be more entry level work with lower wages, uh, which is not classified as in shortage by the, the government in the way we do it at the moment. So our proposed recommendations would have very little effect on the aged care industry. Um, they would have more effect on the hospitality sector, as Will said. We you know cooks and chefs and, and cafe managers uh, who are currently doing work between fifty-three thousand dollars and seventy thousand dollars. We think about ninety percent of those people, you know, wouldn't be able to do those jobs at those wages. Maybe some of their employers increase their wages, you know, to try and to try and keep them. Uh, and we think that would be a good thing too. So, uh, yeah, this this visa will really sort of open up the top end. Of the labour market where salaries are much higher uh, and our proposal would try and pair back at the bottom end for all the reasons that we've talked about uh, in particular uh, exploitation uh, and sort of bargaining power.
0: So Henry I mean say the federal government takes up your proposed reforms here what does happen to the workers who are currently on the TSS scheme that aren't meeting the earnings threshold?
1: Yeah it's a it's a good question Kat. Um, Whenever you have policy change you you know, you're going to have some effects and people are going to be caught up in the middle of it because we're going from doing things one way to doing things a different way. We write a little bit in our report about how we should transition from one system to another. And an important element of that is time to allow both businesses and migrants to adjust. Uh, If people are here at the moment working on a temporary skilled visa, and that visa has an implicit pathway to a permanent visa by their employer sponsorship, uh, we recommend that 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 pathway should be kept uh, and that those people can continue on that path. That said, some people at the moment don't have a pathway to permanent residency. If you're a cook, as opposed to a chef, if you're a sponsored as a cook, you don't have a pathway to permanent residency by your employer at the moment. Uh, And we recommend that when the term of that visa ends, if their wage is below the wage threshold, that job would be ineligible. Uh, and and uh, the employer and the worker would have to do it differently or the worker would have to find a different job. Now, there's always going to be, uh, unfortunately, some people who are sort of caught up in policy change. Um, you know, we would recommend any government looking to do this to to sort of smooth this out as much as possible to limit some of those effects. But when you do change from one system to another, you you are going to have some effects along the way.
0: Henry, this report has been made possible through some very generous support. Uh, would you like to just take us through who's funded that and helped us out with this report?
1: Yeah, thanks, Kat. Uh, all of our work on immigration at the Grattan Institute is funded by donations. Uh, our first report was funded by the Susan McKinnon Foundation, and this this report's been uh, funded uh, primarily by the Scanlon Foundation. But we also rely you know, really heavily on donations from from, from lots of different people, including small donations, one-off donations from the public. And, and uh, yeah, it's, 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 we're so thankful uh, for that support um, because it allows us to, to keep writing and keep researching on these important topics.
0: Thank you so much, Henry and Will, for your insights. And as Henry just mentioned, we are a not-for-profit organisation. So if you would like to become a regular donor to fund our important research work and our lovely podcasts, please go to grattan.edu.au forward slash donate. If you'd like to talk to us more about this particular topic in the podcast, please follow us on social media. We'd love to have a chat with you at GrattanInst on Twitter and GrattanInstitute on all other social media channels. As always, please take care and thanks so much for listening.